Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the light of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God said so we can know what to believe. I want to thank you guys for joining us. We are taking questions from four different platforms. We have one from YouTube and three from Facebook. If you would like to find us every Wednesday and Saturday at, at 3 o'clock, um, almost every Wednesday and Saturday. There are times that we don't do it. Uh, but you can find us on YouTube, the Calvary Tucson web uh, YouTube page. And you can find us on Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson Facebook. And you can submit your questions on the in the comment section by writing the word question or a Q or a question mark in front of your question so I can easily identify it in the comment section. And then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your questions and uh, we will get to it. It's good to see you guys. Happy New Year. I hope New Year, no, Happy New Year's. I hope you guys had a great Christmas and we are going to go ahead and get to our first question now, which was previously submitted and it had to do with um, uh, how, uh, when and how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Uh, this is a really good question and I understand it because uh, when I got saved, I was going to a Methodist church and then I started to go um, over to a Pentecostal church. It was actually a charismatic church and they began to say things and here I'm really young. I'm like 15 years old, 15, 16 years old and they begin to say things like that church doesn't have the Holy Spirit or they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And of course, if you've made a true and a genuine commitment to Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, that uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit. It doesn't mean you just can't say the words. It means that you can't genuinely say Jesus is my Lord without the Holy Spirit. God's got to be working and drawing with you. And the moment that you receive, the, receive Christ, the moment you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. In the end of the book of John, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet they were to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to give them power that they could be witnesses. That's Acts 1.8. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He was in them, but he was not yet upon them. And so you receive the Holy Spirit when you're born again and every genuine Christian has the Holy Spirit. Uh, you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, not just one time. People will ask me, is there a second experience of the Holy Spirit? Yes, and a third and a fourth and a fifth. That if you read the book of Acts, looking for that term upon, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, you'll find that it happens to Peter several times. It happens to them several times. It's like God continues to empower them as they continue to do the work that God's called them to do. Having the Holy Spirit in you has to do with you being a Christian. Having the Holy Spirit upon you has to do with what you do for the Holy Spirit or with the power of the Holy Spirit, what you do for God. And so you are gifted by the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you. He empowers you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so um, how do you receive that Holy Spirit? Well, there's several different ways. In the New Testament, they would lay hands on them and they would receive the Holy Spirit. This is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The disciples had no such thing happen on the day of Pentecost. They're in the upper room being obedient to Jesus, which may indeed be a key to walking in the Spirit. You want to be obedient to Christ and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Now, we do have an example in the Bible of someone receiving Christ, being baptized, and not having the Holy Spirit come upon them yet. And I want to go ahead and bring that scripture up on the screen. This is a really important text. Uh, this is Acts 8. Verse 14, um, I believe it was Philip that had gone to Samaria, preached the gospel to them, and they received Christ. When the disciples heard that they had received him, they sent Peter and John down to Samaria. Remember, this is Samaria, right? To see what's going on. And so here's what it says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 8. Remember, regarding 
receiving the Holy Spirit or the power of the Spirit after receiving the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come to them, prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Now where it says he had fallen upon none of them, I believe that's the best way to put the baptism of the Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, overflowing in the Spirit. I think that that upon experience is the best term to use. It's the biblical term to use. So it says that the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. And, um, and then Simon the sorcerer goes on to offer money for the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the important part of this text for us is that these guys had been baptized in the name of Jesus. They'd been born again, but they'd never received the Holy Spirit. They had only been baptized in the name of Christ. So they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, you could go to a pastor in your church and you could ask him to pray for you to receive it that the Holy Spirit would come upon you. Uh, you, could, you could go to another Christian say that, that, that is spirit-filled and say, lay hands on me and pray for me that I would receive the Holy Spirit. You could ask God and believe that you would receive it. And the evidence that the Holy Spirit is upon you is you will suddenly be empowered by God. There will be a gift. The gift of tongues is not the only evidence of the Holy Spirit, but it is an evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so you will receive power and the Holy Spirit will come upon you specifically to be a witness and to do the work that God's called you to do. And I would encourage you to look to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you've never asked him, Lord, give me the Holy Spirit, then ask him. It's one particular prayer. He said that he will answer. So you receive the Holy Spirit when you're born again. Then you have the Holy Spirit come upon you to empower you to do the work that God's called you to do. And you have the Holy Spirit with you before you come to Christ that draws you and convicts you to Christ with, in, and upon. The three ways that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. All right, so um, it's good to see you guys. It's good to see uh, the questions coming in. I'm gonna go ahead and look back here and take one of the first questions that, come, that comes in here. Um, appreciate you, Daniel. Daniel is here as a moderator. Uh, really good to see you. We have our first question from Psychman45. Psychman, good to see you. Um, he says, Jesus said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Luke 11, 13. If, we all, if we're already spirit-filled, is Jesus inviting us to request an upon experience of the Holy Spirit? What an absolutely perfect question for what we covered at the beginning of this study. Let me go ahead and get, um, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna go back here and then I'm gonna bring your question in here, all right? So this is an absolutely perfect question for what we were talking about. Yes, we receive the Holy Spirit when we're born again, Psych Man 45, and um, then we need the upon experience. Some people call it the baptism of the Spirit. And there is a reference that says in the book of Acts that they had not received the Holy Spirit. They had only been baptized um, in, I think it's, it's, it's the name of John or, or Jesus, but it makes a reference to receiving the Holy Spirit as baptism. So I don't think it's wrong to say that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I think the most biblical word is upon and um, yeah, we ask Jesus for it and we see the experience of them laying hands in the Bible on people to receive it. Um, I do lay hands on people and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. I invite people uh, to come up and be prayed for to receive uh, the Holy Spirit. So yes, psych man, um, very timely question. And I appreciate that um, Luke eleven thirty five 35, uh, that Jesus said to pray that you would receive the Holy Spirit. So thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your question. So we have another question here from Jari. And uh, Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, is discernment biblical? Can I know the intricate details of a person's life without knowing them and be right? I feel in my spirit something is not right with this person or is this, um, or is this witch? 
Um, okay, I think you probably got cut off there. Um, and you might be saying, yeah, I'm not sure what you're saying, witchcraft or something along those lines. Um, so there is a gift of discernment. But there are people that claim that they have the gift of discernment, but what they describe is not the gift of discernment. They claim that they're able to see things that people did or um, know something about them, which might be the gift of knowledge. But discernment is when you get, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you how I feel discernment is. So discernment is when you're able to look at something and determine the right or wrong by it. It may be presented one way, but if you have discernment, you're able to look at something. I'm just talking about discernment, not the gift of discernment. You're able to look at something and you're able to discern that what's presented is not quite right. And I think that's how the gift of discernment works, that someone presents themselves in a certain way and you get discernment over it. And I've had this happen in my life. Maybe all of us have to some degree where there's just something that you know is just not right. And maybe that's, that's something that they gave off. Like we used to have a guy at the church um, who was just overly spiritual. He overly spiritualized everything, was always smiling, was always, hello, brother. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being spiritual, nothing wrong with smiling, nothing wrong with saying, hello, brother. But it was over the top. And that over the top gave me pause. Now, I don't know if that was the gift of discernment or just discernment. And pretty soon it became evident that he was a wolf. He was not a wolf. He was not a wolf, but a wolf. <laughs> he was not just there um, trying to look spiritual, but he was there to take advantage of people. And that became evident. And so that was discernment. Now there's a fine line, Jari, between discernment and judgment. Discernment, um, my late wife had a great gift of discernment and she would say, something's not right there with that individual. But we would also not judge them from it. We would be careful, but we would not say that that discernment is 100% right and we need to judge this person. That's the danger of discernment and that happens. People do that and it's, it's wrong. When you get, you get a, a, a check in your spirit about someone, if you have a feeling of discernment that maybe like I did with that guy that he wasn't right, you are careful. It's not wrong to be careful. It's not wrong to say, let's take our time. Let's, let's make sure we don't put this guy into leadership too fast. It's not wrong to do that because you have a check in the spirit, because you're being led by the spirit, because you might have the gift of discernment. It would be wrong to judge them. It would be wrong to say, I have the gift of discernment. I'm never wrong. That guy, there's something wrong with him. You, you, that would be arrogance and that would be wrong. That lends to spiritual abuse. And I've seen pastors use the gift of discernment in order to just quite frankly, not treat people correctly. What we would call spiritual abuse. Um, just not treating people properly. The most important thing is how we treat people, making sure we walk in love, making sure we treat people right. And so we've got to be careful with this particular gift because if we are wrong or if they repent, we could write them off when we, we might not be correct in our gift of discernment. So, um, yeah, I don't know about intricate details of a person's life. I think that would be more of the gift of knowledge. And I've heard people brag about having this ability. And I quite frankly, don't think that that's what the gift is. I don't think it's like some kind of a parlor trick or something a magician or a witchcraft would, which uh, someone with witchcraft would, would pretend to do. I don't think that's what it is. Um, when you have the gift of knowledge, I think it's something, you know something about someone's life that you shouldn't know. Doesn't mean necessarily mean intricate details. It just means something about their life that you shouldn't know. And maybe it goes hand in hand with the gift of discernment as well. All right, so thank you, Jari, very much for your question. I really appreciate it. It's a good one. I uh, appreciate you if you're joining us here for the very first time, or if you've just tuned in, really glad to have you here. You can submit your questions to the comment section, put a cue in front of it or write question in front of it, a question mark, reread it a couple of times, make sure it's clear, and then go ahead and ask it and we'll take them as they come in. So we have an, another question here from John. 
John says, Happy New Year, Pastor. Thank you. Uh, you as well. Uh, I am having trouble reconciling our Lord making no difference when speaking or teaching between male and female. However, Paul states a few times women are to remain silent. Huh? 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 Um, yeah. So, we, we, take the, we take the Bible as a whole. There are definitely the teachings that Jesus had, and then there are definitely teachings that Jesus didn't talk about. And Paul recognizes this when he talks about marriage and divorce. He says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Jesus said this, or the Lord said this, that you were not to divorce, but I say to you, and then he went on to tell them some things about divorce and remarriage. Does that mean that Paul's words weren't from God? The, um, and then Paul makes some statements and we could look at those passages that are pretty harsh um, towards women that make us think that Paul's dealing with a particular situation in a church. So that as he's writing these letters, there's backstories to the letters and we don't always know the backstories but there are clues that make us think that perhaps there are some backstories to it. And when Paul says, um, I would that women would keep silence in the church, there seems to be a backstory to that. We know he doesn't mean that they can never talk in church because already Paul said that when a woman prays in church or um, prophesies in church, that she should cover her head. So that's talking in church. So he's not saying when he says let women keep silent and learn from their own husbands, he's got to be talking about a certain specific circumstance because he's already talked about women praying and prophesying in church. So there's no reason to make a rule that women can't talk in church. Certain churches do that. It's, it's, I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to the women um, that they can't talk in church. Um, even when Paul says, I don't have a woman to have authority the word that's used for authority there is a is a really harsh word. It's a word you wouldn't want a man taking authority in that way. And so there's a lot that we could talk about with it. But specifically to your question, John, yeah, Jesus doesn't talk about the role of male and female. Paul does. Paul uses the Godhead as an example of submission. So he talks about husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. And Jesus willingly submitted to the will of the Father and, and a woman would willingly submit to the role of her husband. So I am definitely a complementarian, not an egalitarian. Egalitarian would be those that see women and men more of an equal role. They would see the... Um, the Bible talking about men and women as being cultural, and there are cultural things that are there that we would not apply today, so we can see why they would do that. Um, there are also extreme complementarians, and an extreme complementarian just doesn't believe that men or women have certain specific, um, an extreme complementarian um, would, would take and put women really under and not give them a place to be able to talk and a place um, to, be able to, to be able to do certain things, all right? So um, I'm definitely a complementarian and I believe that there are roles in the church and I believe that there are roles in families. I believe that a husband and wife are 100% um, equal. I believe that a man and a woman are 100% equal. I believe that women can be more gifted can have more talents, and that a good, wise leader of a home, if that's a man, would be, if that's a man, because there are women who are leading homes as well with, that aren't married, right? So if it's a man, would be to take advantage of where the wife is smarter, better looking, better whatever, you know, um, better at certain things than the husband is. Um, so it's not a matter of ruling over someone. It's a matter of loving them and serving them as Christ loves the church and serves us. So I know I answered a lot more than just your question between Jesus and Paul, um, but we can have follow-up questions along those lines um, as well. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I really do appreciate it. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, take a look here. Um, so um, we have another question 
from Adrian. Adrian, I really appreciate you uh, writing your question. Adrian comes to us from Facebook and Adrian says, um, Hi, Pastor Robert. Can you discuss the bronze serpent in Numbers 21a? Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. How does this relate to John 3.14? And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you, Adrian. I appreciate that. Um, and so, God had sent a plague to Israel, right? And it was a plague of serpents. So they were being bitten by these serpents and they were dying. I can't remember exactly what Israel did, but they did something and God brought a plague against Israel. And then when Moses finally sought God, God told them to put up this bronze serpent. And they would come out, once they would get bitten, they would come and look to the bronze serpent and they would be healed. Now, as far as I understand it, the serpent becomes a, the bronze serpent becomes a type of Christ crucified. So that when we, when we are bitten by sin, we look at Christ on the cross and we find forgiveness for our sins. At least that's the picture. Certainly it's not trying to tell us that every time we sin, we, want, we gotta go out and look at the cross. But it does mean that every time that we sin, the cross is connected to that sin. And so they would look at this, um, this bronze serpent and they would get healed. Um, later on, they began to worship the bronze serpent, right? And um, they, had to, they had to deal with that because they, that's what happens oftentimes with things is that we begin to worship them instead of really, in, instead of having them be what they're really supposed to be for. Um, but I believe that's why Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the servant, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And I believe he's talking about crucifixion. He goes on to say, and I will draw all men unto me, which I think means that we should keep the crucifixion of Christ in the center of our message, that Christ would be lifted up, that we would preach him crucified, that people would see that and that they would be drawn to him. Um, also, I believe that if we lift Christ up, we put Christ everywhere. We preach Christ from every passage in the Bible and that, that people will see Christ and will be drawn to him. Certainly, no one is going to get saved by great preaching, but they are going to get saved by preaching Jesus. And they, they, people could get saved by very poor preaching that preaches Jesus. So Jesus needs to stay in the middle of it. So I believe that's what the, the bronze serpent means. Um, it is kind of a strange passage because you have a serpent. Of course, you've got the serpent in the garden, right? And Satan that's connected to the serpent. And then you've got this bronze serpent that is a type of Jesus. But the bronze serpent was a type of Jesus on the cross. But the bronze serpent was just because they were being bitten by serpents, by poisonous snakes. And so they put the serpent up and they would go and they would look unto it. But we look unto it when we are bitten by sin and we look at Christ for that reason. All right, Adrian, hopefully I answered all the questions there. If you have a follow-up, please feel free uh, to go ahead and ask a follow-up question on it if I didn't do it, um, didn't cover it completely. All right. Um, let's see. So we have another question from Jari here. I'll go ahead and take that. Jari, again, good to see you. Jari says, is it biblical to dedicate a year to the Lord? days of prayer or fasting during a new year with um, Anderson and Whalen Pentecostal Church. Thank you. Um, okay, so um, yeah, so Jari, um, you attend, um, what is it, Zion now? Is that, that's what it's called? Um, Victory Assembly, and they've rebranded as Zion here recently. Uh, it's a Assembly of God church here in Tucson, a good church, and um, I appreciate them and the work that they're doing. Um, and they're doing it very well, by the way. Um, and so is it biblical to dedicate a year to the Lord? Um, I'm trying to think, there, there, were, there were times in the Old Testament where you would give certain time to God. You would respond in certain ways to give God certain times. So I don't know, Paul came to the temple to, to make a dedication there 
um, when he was arrested. So I, I don't know how biblical it would be. I would certainly would say it's not non-biblical. It's not anti-biblical. The Bible doesn't ever say not to dedicate time to God or or, or anything like that that I know of. Um, I think it's okay to go, you know what, I want to fast. I think it would be a good thing to fast in the beginning of a year or to say, God, I want to dedicate this year to you. It could not be a bad thing for us uh, to do it. Just want to make sure if you're going to make a vow, dedicating a year, fasting, whatever it might be, um, that you keep it. That's what Jesus said. Don't make vows, but if you're going to make them, then keep them. So make sure that you keep that vow. I don't see a problem with dedicating. Um, I think we have desires that whatever year is coming up, we get a fresh start in that year that we would be able to do the very things that God's calling us to do. We would be really faithful in uh, in doing that. And um, so giving him those kind of dedications, I don't think is a problem. I think it's a good thing to do. And we certainly want this next year to be a good and a positive year. So um, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. I really do. Um, so looking here for, uh, we're getting, uh, looking for another question here. Uh, we have another one from Psychman um, 45. So Psychman says, would it be rude to tell a pastor whose fellowship I also attend, it's not his job to worry about growing the congregation. It's God's. Your job is to provide us the church God wants to grow. Um, would it be rude to would it be rude to say to a pastor, don't worry about growing the congregation? Here's what it depends on. Psych man 45. Um, how well you know him. How how you interact with him. So and and, and the way that you approach him. So being able to speak into someone's life in an area that they don't have right. And I think that we could say everybody has areas in their lives that they don't have right. Everybody does, right? And so someone might be able to see it. If you care about a person, you really and genuinely care about them, and they know that you genuinely care about them, then it's going to be a lot easier to be critical towards them. They're going to hear you a lot more if they know you love them, if it comes out of a relationship. And so I would, um, I would not have the only thing that you talked to him about be that. I would look for areas that you could encourage him in. I'm not saying that you manipulate, that you walk up and give him a bunch of flattery and then go ahead and hit him with, hey, it's not your job to cause the church to grow. But I'm saying that you find honest, real ways to encourage him so that you are not just being discouraging when you approach him. It is certainly a problem, Psych Man 45, um, that a church has an, a, this great desire to build, uh, that a pastor has a great desire to build the church. And certainly, um, it, it, you, the, the goal of a pastor is to teach the people that are there. You want to be as effective as you can. You want to be good stewards with what God's given you, right? So I understand when a pastor says, I want to be faithful to as many people as God brings. I want to make sure that I care for them. Um, I want to reach as many people as I can for Christ. I think that those are okay hearts to have. When you become obsessed with growth, there's a problem. Or when you are missing ministering to the people that are there because you're so worried about the people who aren't there. So I think you're on the right track I just think you've got to figure out how this is not going to be rude to be able to say to him or how you're not going to discourage him to be able to say to him, it's not his job to worry about growing the congregation. Um, so I would, um, if I, if I were going to do it and I had a, and I had a relationship where I'd, I'd been talking, I've really been developing a relationship. I knew someone and I felt like they were overly obsessed. I would try to find a, a positive way to be able to do it. So in other words, I probably wouldn't say to them, it's not your job to worry about growing the congregation. Okay, that's probably, I wouldn't say that. That sounds a little harsh. Um, I would probably say something like, um, and I would pray about it, but something like, hey, I've been praying for you. Um, just an encouragement to minister to the people who are there. Maybe not worry so much about the church growing. I know you're talking about the church growing or whatever it is that makes you think that, 
But so I would try to find an encouraging way to be able to say that to him. So when you're looking to be able to say something that's critical to someone, you want to be able to do it in the the best possible way you can so that you're not going to turn them off and you're not going to discourage them. And it's got to come out of a, of, of a relationship. Now, it's going to depend on the person too a lot because some people take criticism well and some people don't. Some people, when they're criticized, man, it really gets them. And I can tell you as one who receives criticism from people that sometimes it can really sting to receive that criticism. And I, I, I'm open. I tell people, come and tell me when I've said something that's wrong. Come and tell me when you, when there's something that you, that you see differently in the scriptures. Um, but also when you approach him, give him a chance to whether or not determine whether or not what you're saying is right. So in other words, he might go, when you say it's not your job, however you say it, it's not your business to grow the church, but it's your business to teach the church. Let God be the one to grow it. He might go, I don't think I am. He might go, I don't see myself there. I don't see myself as, as one who is just trying to grow the church and not minister to people. I just want to be a good steward of what God's given. So you've got to be willing to be able to take that as well without being without getting caught into any kind of contentiousness. All right? So hopefully that's helpful, psych man. Um, always out of a relationship. Never walk up to someone that you don't know very well and just criticize them. That's not, that's not, it's not going to be effective. Um, you earn the right to be able to speak into someone's life. And you do that by developing a relationship with someone, encouraging them, getting, getting to know them, showing them that you're on their side. The more they know that you're on their side, the more they're going to be willing to receive something and maybe be willing to say that what they're, you're receiving is right. Okay. So thank you very much uh, for your question, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Uh, if you are just joining us, we want to welcome you. If you have a question, then you can write the word question down or a question mark or a Q. That'll help me to see it as I'm going through the comment section uh, to be able to choose our next or to get our next question. Um, let's see. I'm going to go ahead and bring in a question here. Um, and this doesn't have the word question in front of it, but I, I believe it's a question. Okay. So, um, and this comes from Michael. Uh, Michael comes to us from YouTube. Michael, good to see you. Thank you for asking your question. What should a member do if, if a church votes no by a majority vote to enforce discipline, even if the sin is significant, outward, and unrepentant, as in Ephesians 5.3? Let's go ahead and take a look at Ephesians 5.3, and we will uh, talk about this. Ephesians 5, and then verse... Um, Three. All right. So let me go ahead and put it on the screen for you here. Um, so Ephesians 5, 3 says, um, but fornicators and all uncleanliness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as it is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness or foolish talk or coarse jesting. Okay. Um, so let me go ahead and uh, psych man still up here on this one. Let me go ahead and go back to where I think you are. There you are. All right, Michael. Um, man, this is a hard one. Um, I'm going to assume in my answer that what you're saying is correct. All right. So, and I'm, I'm not questioning you. I'm simply saying sometimes we can misrepresent things or we misunderstand things and there might be more to the account or the story. But I'm going to assume that there it's unrepentant, that the guy's not repenting from it, that it is outward, everybody knows it, and it's significant. Okay, those are the three things that you have said. And in this church body, there has to be a vote for there to be church discipline. And the, the church said no, they voted no to it. And I would see them very much like the church in Corinth, who had a guy there who was sleeping with his mother, and they were not doing anything. Paul said, put him out of the church. And then he repented and they wouldn't let him back in. So Paul would write him again and say, let him back in now. This is the purpose for it. Don't crush him because he's already repented. But that's the purpose. And I would say, 
the discipline action isn't working in this church. I mean, the, the way that they've got their government set up for discipline to take place isn't working. If all of these things are true and they are not bringing enforcement that is there. Um, what should a member do? I think I would consider, I think I would consider leaving the church, to be honest with you. I hate to say that. I like to encourage people to stay at their churches, but when sin is being accepted and isn't being dealt with, then there's a problem. And um, especially, you know, again, without knowing all of the details that are here, um, I think that there there is a problem with this particular church. And uh, so, Michael, that would be um, that that would be my answer. Now, there might be some other circumstances, situations that would make me feel differently about it. But assuming everything here, and I don't know why it wouldn't be. I don't know why you know you would have shared it if it wasn't. Um, then I probably I it would I would find it very hard to still just sit down and go to church. I would find that very difficult, um, knowing that this was done and staying in church with this person that has this unrepentant sin in their lives. So I would find that very difficult. Um, all right, so thank you, Michael, for your question. I really do appreciate it. Let's see what other questions we have here. We have a question from Daniel. Daniel is our moderator. Daniel, good to see you. Uh, Daniel says, what should a member do in a church? Oh, well, it's, oh, so it's the same question that we just had. All right, so thank you, um, Daniel. I appreciate you uh, clarifying that. All right, um, so... Let's see if we have another question here. I see your question from Jari. We've taken a question, a couple from Jari today. So I'm gonna look, and if I don't have another question here, Jari, or, um, or if I run out, I'll come back and pick your question up, all right, before we go on um, to some prepared. All right, so let me just go ahead and bring Jari's question in here. So um, let's see, did I have another question from you? Yeah, I did. All right, so Jari, uh, again, good to see you, Jari. Jari has another question. Jari says, question, uh, the cross. If Jesus was only stoned, would that mean that only the Jews could be saved? If that, is that why the Romans had a, a part Gentiles, everyone can be saved? Why the cross and not? Um, so why the cross? Uh, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? So, the Bible tells us that everyone that hangs on a tree is cursed. So, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So, on the cross, he became sin and he became that curse. And I think that's why God chose it. It's also very brutal, um, able, what, what he would go through because of the cross, maybe more brutal than stoning, although stoning would be brutal as well, but probably more brutal than stoning would be um, the cross, which we get the word excruciating from. And so Jesus is hung upon the cross. Also, God foretold it because you have Psalms 22, which is just an incredible detail of crucifixion, a thousand years before crucifixion was ever invented. In fact, I want to go go ahead and go there and read a certain section of this um, to you uh, because it is absolutely amazing. It's a, it's a Psalm of David. Let me go ahead and um, get it up on the screen here for you. It's a Psalm of David, but it is absolutely amazing. This is a thousand years before crucifixion is invented. And not only is it any crucifixion, it's the actual crucifixion of Jesus. So it's foretold that he would be upon the cross. So he would need to be upon the cross. So here he says, it starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which we know that Jesus said on the cross, why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? I believe that what we're saying here is Jesus on the cross, actual Jesus and what he's thinking. I think he was, he was, he was fully human, fully God, and as a fully human, he was in shock and wondering what was happening. My God, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, there was darkness while Jesus hung upon the cross. You are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. 
They trusted and you were delivered from them. They cried to you and you were delivered. They trusted and you were not, were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man. The worm for worm here in the Hebrew is the worm that they would make red dye from. Jesus, after being beaten and scourged, was covered in blood and was like here and, and considered himself to be a worm, um, a reproach and despised by all people. All those who see me ridicule me. Of course, they stood around Jesus and made fun of him. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. The exact thing they said to Jesus on the cross. This is Psalms a thousand years before. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb, made me to trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. The strong bulls of Ash have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouth like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. When you would be crucified, your body would hang forward. Your shoulders would come out of joint. Your, your, there would be weight that would collapse your lungs or would press on your lungs, make it very difficult to breathe, my, make it put pressure on your heart. My heart is like wax that has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue clings to my jaw. Jesus said, I thirst. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now that literally is like a lion at my hands and feet. So people try to argue that this is not saying that he was nailed to a cross. But the Septuagint uses the word pierce. Septuagint is a Greek version of the Old Testament that was completed a couple hundred years before Christ. Like a lion at my hands and feet would be a way, a way of saying that they pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me and they stare at me. They divide their garment among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So this is Jesus. This is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus upon the cross. And so Jari, I believe that it's foretold that Jesus had to become that curse. He had to become sin for us. It had to be very visible. The cross would become a symbol to us. We would have to pick up our cross and carry it. None of that would work with being stoned. You, you can't say, I'm gonna pick up my, I'm gonna go out in front of people to be stoned. And so the cross works perfect for all that God had planned and uh, uh, for them. So I am not surprised that he used the cross and it's also foretold. Um, the very last verse of the Old Testament, the very last word is curse. Then the New Testament opens up with the coming of the Messiah to be able to lift curse, the curse of sin from mankind, which is a pretty significant, right? That that curse has been, that curse of sin is upon um, mankind. All right. So I appreciate uh, your question again, Jari. Thank you very much. If you're new here, we want to welcome you guys. If you have a question, then go ahead and write question or put a question mark in front of it and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, and then go ahead and submit it in the comment section and reread it a couple of times so that it makes sense. Go ahead and put it in the comment section and we will uh, respond to it. I have a question here that is prepared and um, from a previous Q&A. Uh, is it possible to be sinless and to, and, and to achieve perfection in this life? All right. So um, there is a teaching among what we would call the holiness movement. And I was a part of the holiness movement in one of the churches that I attended when I was a teenager that taught sinless perfection. I actually sat in studies where people said it's possible that you, you could not sin. You can get to the place where you don't sin anymore. You've got to, you've got to strive and you've got to climb. Um, I remember one time uh, an analogy being used, you got to climb the cliffs of holiness and it's difficult and it's hard, but once you get to the plateau of holiness, then you don't sin anymore. Um, and the guy that taught it said, I haven't sinned in 12 years. And there are people today that are teaching the same thing. There are people that are teaching that you can reach sinless perfection and they say that they, have, that they haven't sinned for a certain amount of time. This is usually a Pentecostal teaching. Um, it is oftentimes in, well, it's not a sound biblical teaching. 
Okay, so oftentimes it's in churches that don't hang on to sound biblical teaching. It's identified as a false teaching. That doesn't mean the person that gives the teaching is a false teacher. They might be. A false teacher is someone that has the role of teaching, but they haven't been called by God to be a teacher. But a genuine teacher could give a false teaching. And and the false teaching, and, and anybody could make a mistake or anybody could teach something that later on they would change their mind on and go, that's not right. We all need to be open to that because we want to be able to do what's right. We want to do what is said is right. But um, the Bible simply says in 1 John chapter 1, if someone says they don't sin, they're lying. That's very clear. So we all have sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we can't get to the place where we don't sin. So when the guy said, um, when I heard the guy preaching saying, I haven't sinned in 12 years, he was lying. He was sinning at the moment that he said that. Because he was, he was, he was not, bear, he was bearing false witness on himself. I haven't sinned in 12 years. When in fact he was sinning at that very moment by bearing false witness. And so this is a problem teaching. It also lays a real heavy burden on people. I believe in sanctification. I believe that God sanctifies us. I believe that God is bringing us to maturity. I believe that as we walk with Christ and we grow and we mature, that we sin less. Not that we can become sinless, but we can sin less. And we want to, we want to move forward in that walk with Christ and we want to sin less and we want to get rid of the things in our lives that are strongholds in us. We want to fight against them. So we, we don't want to discourage that. But we also don't want to lay on people something that's not realistic, that they would find themselves trying to not sin when, and, and, and feeling horrible when they don't. Now, I can tell you my experience um, at this church, I tried to not sin. And the funny thing is, I thought that I did good for like two weeks. I would think I haven't sinned in two weeks. I would think I hadn't done it. But then, you know, in reality, there's pride, um, there's gossip, there's things that you do that you don't even know that you do, right? You're lifting yourself up, you're seeking your own way. There are certain things that you don't even know you're doing. And But as far as the biggies went, I could go a couple weeks and then I would blow it. And then I would go, oh Lord, I'm sorry. And I would feel so bad. What I never knew until I actually was a little bit older and I was listening through the Bible with Pastor Chuck Smith, I had discovered um, Hosanna Tape Library. And you could get three tapes a week, and then you had to take them back. You could listen to them, take them back, and you could get three more. And um, there was one here in, in Tucson, there was one in Albuquerque where I grew up. And I listened to J. Vernon McGee through certain books of the Bible, and I listened to Chuck Smith all the way through the Bible. Both of those guys taught all the way through scripture. And um, Chuck talked about grace, God's grace. And that when you blew it, when you sinned, you just went to God. And you genuinely said to him, I'm sorry. I don't wanna, I don't wanna do this. I'm sorry that I did it. And when you are broken and contrite, the God's grace forgives you. And the whole time I'm trying to climb these cliffs of holiness to get to that plateau, there was a helicopter ride called Grace up to that plateau. That the moment that I asked him, I found myself forgiven. And what a much better way to live. For me, yeah, I, I want to avoid sin. I want to be as holy as I can. But if I blow it, I have the grace of God to be able to ask him to forgive me. And so, no, it's not possible to receive sinless perfection while we're in the body, this body. Um, my flesh fights against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. If anyone says they have no sin, they're lying. The truth is not in them. That's what the Bible says. Um, and, um, and that teaching's a false teaching. And there are large churches today that teach it. And we, we, we want to stay as far away from that as we possibly can. All right. So thank you very much. Um, so we have a, a question here from Michael. So Michael says, what is a good modern English Bible version? And does anyone use the New King James at Calvary Chapel, Tucson? Thanks, Michael. I appreciate that. Um, I use the New King James. It's what I've used be, when, I, when I was a teenager and started listening through the Bible with Pastor Chuck, he used New King James. And so I bought a New King James so that I could read 
along with him while I was reading it. And so um, my quiet times in those days were putting in a tape, listening through a teaching and reading the Bible while he was doing it. So the New King James is a good version. Um, it comes from a certain set of manuscripts that the King James Bible comes from. And there are a lot of people who think that they are superior to the to more, um, I don't want to say more modern manuscripts, but manuscripts that have been discovered since those manuscripts were used for the King James and the New King James Bible. Um, I personally feel like all of the manuscripts need to be taken into account. And that, and, and the ESV, the NASB, um, uh, our, our, our Bibles, um, the NIV, although I think there's, there's certain problems with the NIV. Um, I tried to teach from the NIV for a while and then just came across a couple of glaring things that I just couldn't do it. So I went back to the, to the New King James. Um, but remember, these are all translations. So a translation takes what we're getting in Greek and brings it over into English. And so we have to take that into account and we've got to have some faith that according to um, Psalms 12, uh, Psalms 12, I think it's six and seven. I want to get there and, and bring it up for you. That we have to come with some faith to believing the scriptures. There's great confidence that we can have that what the Bible says is true. Um, but we have to come uh, to a point of faith. So I want to go ahead and bring this up for you here and I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean. So this is Psalms 12 and we see it here in verse 6. Um, this, is, uh, this is a good passage to memorize. Psalms 12 verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from generations forever. So God's word promises us that he has preserved his word from generations forever. And so I have no problem with taking a look at, um, I don't know, let's see right there, there we are. Okay, so I have no problem I can't find, uh, find your question here, Michael. Let me bring you up back up on here. All right, so I, I have no problem um, with looking at different translations that, that deal with different words, looking at all of the discovery of all of the manuscripts, comparing and contrasting all of them. I don't think that we should negate any of them. Um, I think that those that do translations do a good job with rating them better or worse manuscripts this manuscript evidence or the science of being able to, to um, look at manuscripts and determine what's good and what's bad is all, is all really good. All it does is add to our ability to be able to understand and know um, the scriptures. So um, good versions. Um, uh, New King James version, ESV, um, NASB uh, are all good study Bibles. Um, the King James is not bad. It's just hard to understand. Sometimes when you're reading it, you're not quite sure what's being said. And so it's probably good to be reading another version alongside of it. I do know that there are the King James only people who are out there. <clears throat> and I explained some of their arguments when they talk about manuscripts. They're getting back to manuscripts. That's their arguments for um, King James only. All right. So thank you very much, um, Michael, for your question. I really appreciate that. I'm going to bring in a question here from Sharon. Um, if you're visiting with us or if you're here for, with the first time, if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you. Stop by for a cozy visit. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, really glad you're here. Uh, if you have a question, you can write the word question, submit it um, with the word question or a cue in front of it so I can identify it as a question and then we can look at them as they come in. So Sharon says, why did God require blood? Couldn't he have set up a different plan for atonement after... Um, as, as, uh, as with the blood. All right. So, um, yeah. Why did God require blood? Um, the Bible tells us life is in the blood. And so it makes sense that it would be through the remission of that. We would have the remission of sins through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. It's actually the shedding of his blood 
the Bible says in Ephesians, that it gives us the remission of sins. It wasn't his suffering. It wasn't the nails being driven through his hands. It wasn't the actual weight of him hanging on the cross or the suffering of the cross. It was the shedding of his blood for our sins. Um, and I think because blood is required, life is in the blood and blood is required. And I think that's why God did it. Now I'm talking off the top of my head. Um, one of the studies that I would like to do that I've been thinking about lately, it has concerning with the blood because the Bible talks about life being in the blood Then going back and looking at all the verses in the Bible that talk about blood and just get a better understanding of this. But I really do believe that God used blood because life is in the blood and that's why. And so Jesus's blood literally covers our sins. Um, he shed his blood so that my blood doesn't have to be covered. Um, because there's life in the blood and sin brings death. Jesus's death and shedding of blood was able to bring life back in, into me. All right. So hopefully that answers your question, Sharon. Um, you could ask a follow-up question. I know we're getting near to near the end of the hour, um, but you could ask a follow-up question. If I didn't quite answer that um, correctly. Um, all right. So uh, it's been good to see you guys. Good to have you here. I got one more question here I want to bring in. It has to do with versions of the Bible again. Um, this is from Waiting for the Lord. Uh, question, wonder. Many say the King James Version is best. Many say NIV, our new King James, from personal preference. Who determines which is better and more accurate version? Many say NIV or ESV are great. Hello, group. All right, so Waiting for the Lord. Um, yeah, I don't know that there's a a group of people that are chosen to say that's the best one. I think that when you, when you come to scholars that do the scientific work of, of criticism of manuscripts, critic, um, um, and I forget exactly what that's called, um, but when they do that work that you could take them and they could do a consensus or they might have a consensus on what they feel is the best version. Um, I don't know. I don't know of any anyone that I've heard that I would say would be a scholar that would give the, that that I've heard give their opinion on what they think is the best. Um, as I said, I think King James is good and NIV is good. In fact, oftentimes when you're reading the New King James, you say, well, this word in the Greek is this word. Oftentimes the NIV has it. So there are positives to the NIV. There's just a couple of problem passages in the way that they've handled it. Um, and again, um, ESV is good, uh, NASB. Um, so I don't know that there's anything out there that we could say that's the best version. You could have the ones that you believe are the best. For me, it's the New King James version because that's what I've read my entire life. And that's what I know. I've memorized it in the New King James. And so I know it really well. And um, so sometimes I have difficulty reading other versions out loud because I know it so well in the King James. So I don't know about if there's a consensus there. Um, I think there's a uh, blue letter Bible has the tool where you can bring up a passage and then look at versions and read versions and the different ones. And that's so helpful. Um, to be able to do that, it helps you to understand, you know, why certain words are translated certain ways. All right. So thank you very much waiting for the Lord. I appreciate that. Thank you guys for your questions. Um, I really appreciate them. I hope you guys have a really great day. Uh, in, um, we have a service in two hours. Um, we're in Philippians chapter two. We're covering verses 12 through 18. Um, we're talking about shining bright in a murky world. Our world is getting increasingly dark. Um, the Bible says in the end of the book of Revelations, the filthy are going to remain filthy still, but the righteous are going to remain righteous. We live in a dark world. We want to shine as bright lights. How do we do that when the world has become so dark? And there's four things that we're going to talk about in our study tonight that we want to make sure that we're doing to be able to shine brightly for Jesus to family, friends, coworkers, and acquaintances. So I'd invite you guys to join us. You can come out East or West Campus, six o'clock East Campus, 715 West Campus. You can come out live to those if you're here in Tucson, um, or you can join us live online, six o'clock, and um, we'll have a time of worship. 
and then we'll be getting into the word uh, for the rest of that. All right, so it's good to see you guys. May the Lord bless you. May you find yourself really close to him. Thank you guys for sharing. Um, we will, I'll post whether or not we're gonna have a Q&A on Saturday. It is New Year's Day. Um, I'm thinking right now that we're gonna do it, but we might not. So just kind of keep a look out for the posting. I'll try to put it up a day or so before. Um, one of the things that I've been working on, uh, we had a question a while back about the woman uh, riding the beast in John's in, in Revelation 17, and um, I've, I've I've written a hot topic on that. We're going to do a hot topic on it. I also want to come and cover it here as one of our first questions because we had some questions about that, and um, the Catholic Church was brought up Dave Hunt stuff about the Catholic Church, so I want to address that. So we'll do that maybe Saturday, if not this Saturday, next Saturday, all right? So God bless you guys. It's good to see you. I always appreciate you guys and the questions that you bring. I hope you stay really close to Jesus. Thanks, Thank you guys. I'm going to sign out now. We will see you.